glad you could be here this morning to worship the Lord together on this wonderful, beautiful sunny, uh, Sunday again. I, I echo just what Brother Stan mentioned, just a welcome, warm welcome to our, our team from Argentina. Uh, so glad to have you all back with us. And uh, we look forward to hearing the testimony. I believe we'll be hearing a, uh, just an update report from them at our church family meeting uh, in a few weeks. So uh, please, and as well as the, uh, the Taiwan team, I believe we'll also give a report there. So I hope you'll make time to come to our church family meeting uh, <coughs> next in two weeks from now, two weeks from now. If you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to, uh, to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 8, verse 40 to 56, is where we'll be today. I want to thank, especially, uh, give, express my appreciation to, uh, to Young and, and Ed, uh, who did a lot, provide a lot of the leadership in our men's ministry and bringing together our, our conference uh, yesterday, our men's conference. It was a wonderful time. We had uh, at least 50-some, 60 men here uh, to, <coughs> to hear God's word and to be challenged to, to become uh, men who live a life of, of discipleship, uh, not only following Christ, but leading others. Uh, to follow Christ, and that was a good time. Uh, I hope the brothers enjoyed the fellowship. Uh, I know I enjoyed the fellowship. Uh, it was, uh, you know, it's good. It's it's not just one of those conferences where you go leave with it. Oh, good, yeah, I'm glad. Uh, yeah, all those people need to hear that word. But you know, it's a good conference, and you walk with it. Oh, yeah, I, I needed to hear that word, uh, and that was good uh, for me. So uh, I don't know about the other men. I, I know other men were blessed, were blessed too. But really, thank God for uh, the conference, Pastor Carl Hargrove, and. Uh, who came to speak to us. <clears throat> so, wonderful. I look forward to next year's conference. Look forward to next year's conference. All right. Luke chapter 8, verse 40 to 56 is where we'll be this morning. We'll continue our series through the gospel of Luke. And uh, just uh, again, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm really looking forward to next Sunday. You may you guys know next Sunday is our church family retreat. It's our annual retreat. And uh, it, is, uh, it's probably, it has got to be one of the highlights of our calendar year. Because we all get to go somewhere else, and, and I don't, I get to not wear a suit all weekend. It's really fun. It's my, it's, I'm excited about that. But no, really, I get to see you guys, and you get to see me, and we get to see each other a little more relaxed, a little more comfortable. We get to know one another, especially some of you who are newer to the church. Uh, I, I enjoyed this opportunity to kind of get to know some of you. Uh, so I hope many of you will get to join us. I know that not everyone can join us, uh, and so we do have uh, the, uh, the the joint service, and so which was announced earlier. I hope you'll be here for that. It is a blessing. Just to, uh, and if you are thinking, well, maybe I won't go. Well, I think you know, just think about it. you. You come uh, with an attitude to encourage. You can at least think about how you can encourage the Candies ministry. Uh, that Sunday, our Candies ministry doubles in attendance generally. Uh, so, uh, <clears throat> because of the, so many of our English ministry folks sticking around, uh, I think you'll enjoy that fellowship. Nevertheless, next weekend, Pastor Alan Jin uh, is uh, is going to be speaking to us on the subject of finishing well. Finishing well—that's an important subject. Uh, it, no matter how you, we even heard it yesterday at our conference, no matter how, you know, how well you may start, how well you may, well you may do for the majority of your life, it's really the most important thing is that you finish well. It, it's true per, particularly in sports. Uh, it's true in, in battles, in wars. Uh, you want to win at the end. You want to finish well. Uh, you know, no, no matter whatever ha else happens uh, up to that point. And it's true for us uh, as Christians. We want to finish well in the Christian life. The reality for all of us is that our lives do come to an end one day, right? We are all going to finish the course. We're all going to uh, have finished running the race. All of us will have come to the end of fighting the good fight. And death will face us all. I know I'm looking forward to just hearing God's word uh, challenge us and, and for how we might live 
whatever years the Lord gives us until he calls us home so that we might finish well. We want to finish well not only in the last years of our lives, but we also want to finish well in the last moments of our lives. And at our retreat, I'll have an opportunity to teach a workshop, uh, something I've been wrestling with and thinking a lot about over the last couple of years, but it's a workshop on how to face death and dying. So I, I know if you've spent any amount of time thinking about death and dying, uh, it's for, uh, it can become a, a kind of a, a, a fearful thing, something that kind of can almost make you grip you and make me kind of freeze you for a little bit. Uh, because there's so many uncertainties that come with death and dying, even though we know that on the other side of death it is eternity, eternal joy and bliss and, and glory. But death and dying itself, the process of dying and getting to the, leading to the point of actual death is uh, something that can cause fear in many. Today's passage helps us to face this, uh, this moment in our lives, these final moments of our lives particularly, when we face those last days, those last months, those last weeks, those last uh, minutes where we're facing death, we might remember these truths like from the passages that we find today. It shows us how Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, is, is the one who is in complete control over the circumstances surrounding not only a, a woman with an incurable disease, but a, a man with a, a dying daughter. And we find encouragement in these passages because we, we, remind, we remember that Jesus is in complete control over the circumstances surrounding our own inevitable diseases and death. We will see in this passage Jesus' authority, his command, and his power like no other up to this point. We've seen a series of miracles that have demonstrated Jesus' power and authority in the calming of the storm, for instance. We saw Jesus having... Uh, command over the winds and the waves. He has power over natural forces. In the healing of the demon-possessed man, the, the garrison demoniac who was possessed by a legion of demons, we saw that Jesus has command over demons. He has power over and authority over supernatural forces. In the two intertwined miracles of today's text, we observe that Jesus also commands disease and death. structure of the passage is it's a bit unusual as well as we read it though it's quite familiar i'm sure to any of us who've read the gospel this uh this passage or this story appears in all three of the synoptic gospels in matthew mark and luke uh it's sort of known as an example of a sandwich structure where it's uh, kind of like a a story within a story uh, uh, an event within an event being told but however, even though we find it this way, it's not, Luke has not written it this way for, just for simply for literary style. But he's just simply describing what actually took place. That is, Jesus was going about fulfilling, uh, fulfilling one miracle. He, in the, in the, right in the middle of it, performs another. The commonality between these two miracles are basically an incurable illness and a desperate faith. And when we uh, face death, when we face uh, that, whether it's a disease or just simply a old age, we'll find ourselves in incurable moments. And we may be, our faith may be tested and may feel desperate. But I pray that, and I hope we all pray, that we will have our faith in Christ, a faith that trusts in him, 
through every single moment, every uh, in, that, in those final moments of our lives. And what's learned from this text is both individuals these place their faith in Jesus so we can and be encouraged to as well. Uh, <clears throat> well, let's take a look at this passage in five points. We'll look at five lessons about faith, really, about trusting in Jesus, five lessons about faith, the kind of faith that uh, we develop, uh, we have when it comes to facing uh, the, the circumstances of disease and death. So five lessons about faith, about trusting in Jesus in the face of disease and death. So let's take a look at this story. I'll just basically tell the story and let's draw out some of these points. The first thing, and point number one is, uh, and if, uh, before we even get to the text, uh, let me pray. Father, thank you so much for this story. Lord, you know, you know how uh, disease and death strike us all. And for some of us, it is a reality that is quite present. It may be testing our faith, stretching us, Lord, and even causing us to fear. Well, God, I pray that you will take your word by the power of your spirit, that you would cause it to encourage your people, that their faith may be strengthened, so that they may face disease and death with a faith that is centered and has its object in your Son, the one who has all power, authority, control, command over disease and death, the one in whom we hope, the one whom we cling to, Our Lord and Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. The first thing that we learn up here about trusting in Jesus in the face of disease and death, and it's found in verses 40 to 42, and that is we find that such a faith is a humble faith. It's a humble faith. Verse 40 to 42, let's look at this story. And as Jesus returned, the people welcomed him, for they had all been waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, he was an official of the synagogue. And he fell at Jesus' feet and began to implore him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years old, and she was dying. But as he went, the crowds were pressing against him. Jesus had just come back from the other side of Galilee, the Ger in, Geras in Gersa, uh, the garrison where he healed the demoniac. And the people there had basically rejected him. They were afraid of him. They asked him to leave. And so he leaves him and he comes back to the other side, basically back near Capernaum again. And here he is greeted with a throng of people, a throng of waiting people, welcoming him, looking forward to seeing him. And unexpectedly among this crowd, this was not unusual in the sense that there was always crowds around Jesus, but unexpectedly there was an individual in this crowd that we might not expect to see. A man named, this man named Jairus. He's unexpected because he wasn't any ordinary man, but he was the leader of the local synagogue. He was responsible for, uh, among, uh, with probably with the other leaders, uh, for its overseeing its administration. He would have worked closely with the other elders, the scribes, as well as the Pharisees. And this is significant, because as a leader in the synagogue, 
The last time that Jesus came out of this synagogue was found in, was back in Luke chapter 6, verse 6 through 11. And what happened there was that the religious leaders, the scribes being led by the scribes and Pharisees particularly, had decided to conspire to destroy Jesus. So Jairus himself was either a part of that group who conspired, or would he, he would have known them as his peers. He was associated with them. No, no doubt seeking Jesus would raise eyebrows, incur the criticism of his peers. Are, is he betraying them? Is he on, all of a sudden now with Jesus, this, this heretic? But nevertheless, Jairus came. He came to Jesus and noticed he didn't just come in, in, in a respectable fashion. He came and fell at his feet. You can't fall at someone's feet with pride. You fall at someone's feet in humility. It was an act of complete humility. And what makes this man who should have every reason to distrust Jesus come in such humility is because he was in desperate need. Jairus here, we've read in the text, is faced not with his own death, something much worse, the death of his own daughter. She is his only daughter. Notice. She's 12 years old. And she's dying. As a parent, we can only we can imagine how it must have ached him to watch her suffer. How he must have sought every possible means, every medical uh, doctor, every uh, every kind of cure or superstitious practice, and to seek to heal her. How would he would have wished to trade places with her if he could? But there was no cure. And she was dying. She's at the point of death, and Jairus is facing a helpless situation. Surely they would watch her die. What else could be done? But aha, uh -huh. word starts spreading that Jesus of Nazareth has returned. Jesus, that miracle worker, yes, that heretic, the one, the violator of the law, the friend of tax gatherers and sinners, yes, he's back. But you know, when you're in a desperate need, those kinds of things don't seem so important. And he just knows that Jesus is a miracle worker. And he has this faith that if Jesus is willing, Jesus can heal him, heal her, his daughter. And so, here was the one last thing he would try. He would ask Jesus of Nazareth to come. He had seen and heard the miracles. He was there in the synagogue when the demons were cast out. He had seen in the city and heard of uh, Peter's mother-in-law being healed. He had heard about the demons cast out. He had noticed despite Jesus being a heretic and threat, Jairus went to seek out this man. And he came in the moment of desperation and need. And Jairus laid aside his pride, came humbly to Jesus, and he fell at his feet. And he implored, the imperfect tense was, he kept on begging him. He kept on imploring him. He wouldn't stop until Jesus would come to him. No, not just until, could come into him, into his house. To allow him to be associated with this man took great humility. He had faith that Jesus' power could save his daughter. And Jesus, of course, in his great compassion, goes with him. 
Jairus' faith was a humble faith born out of desperate need. And when facing death, you, you and I may often feel helpless, that we can't stop what's happening, and, and really we can't. But that is when your faith in Jesus should cause you, will cause you to turn in humble dependence upon him. It's at those moments when your faith basically caused you to fall down before Jesus in complete surrender. And complete, Lord, I, I cannot do anything. I can't even change anything. And Lord, but I know that you can. I know that if you will, you would. And I just want to I fall down at your feet and cry out, Jesus, help me because I need you. And that's how all of us come to Jesus in humble need. Secondly, we, we learn, not only learn that faith that comes to trust in Jesus in the face of death and dying is a humble faith. It must be a humble faith, but it also must be a public faith. We find in verse 43 to 48 this kind of this, uh, this interruption into Jesus going with Jairus to his daughter. And we read in 43 to 48 this, this story. And it really, I could, we could preach this in one whole sermon, but I, I think there's a, we can learn some lessons as we read it in the context of this whole pa- of, of Jairus' daughter's healing. And we read in 43 to 48, And a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and could not be healed by anyone came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. And immediately her hemorrhage stopped. And Jesus said, Who is this one who, t- who is the one who touched me? And while they were all denying it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and, and pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone did touch me, for I was aware that power had gone out of me. When the woman saw that she had not escaped notice, she came trembling and fell down before him and declared in the presence of all the people the re- of all the people the reason why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed and he said to her daughter your faith has made you well go in peace so as jesus goes with jairus he's surrounded by a crowd you can imagine it's like it's like it's, it's worse than the shepherd's conference you can't get through uh, there's just all these thousands of pastors trying to get to donuts and he's like oh i can't get those donuts no, Jesus is a crowd surrounded by crowds of people, and he's trying to get just across town to Jairus' house where his daughter is, is lying, laying, uh, dying. And along comes this woman, a woman who has a condition that was basically a hemorrhage. Basically, she was bleeding. It was a continual bleeding in her life. And you can just imagine those who are doctors understand the, the dangers of continually bleeding. Uh, loss of blood made her feel constantly weak, anemic. She was tired. Uh, and keep in mind, this wasn't just for a week or a month or a year, but this was for a period of 12 years. She was continually having this hemorrhage. Perhaps it would stop and they would come back, but it was a continually ble- a bleeding of, uh, in her life, a hemorrhage. This woman suffered daily for 12 years. And no matter how many doctors she sought or cures she sought, she says here she could not be healed by anyone. In fact, in Mark's parallel account, we actually learned that she had spent all that she had seeking a cure. There's some people out there that have a lot of money. They just spend, and they know they're dying. They'll just want to spend all their money to try to stay alive, to find a cure to the disease. And she was one like, like everyone else. And she had spent all her money looking for the for a cure and she was now had nothing left she was poor but what's more not only was she financially distraught and not only physically uh distressed but she was spiritually and socially uh distressed 
According to the Old Testament law, a woman who had a, a flow of blood was ceremonially unclean, according to Leviticus chapter 15, verse 25 to 27. Anyone or anything that she then touched was also considered unclean. So you can just imagine as she's going around this crowd, she's, she's jostling with people. Everybody she's touching is becoming unclean. If they knew that she was this woman who had unclean, was unclean, they would have been quite upset and angry. Those who knew her probably, knew her of her condition, knew of her uncleanness, and they would have kept away from her. And her own uncleanness kept her from participating in normal society as well as religious life. She was essentially isolated from her community. So here's a woman in desperate need. And like Jairus, she seeks Jesus, and only because only he could heal her. For whatever reason, she believes that all she has to do is, is just touch him. And she would be saved from her condition. So coming from behind him, she just touches him. She doesn't only touch his body, she touches the, the fringe of his cloak. And her healing was immediate, we read. Her bleeding stopped. The pain, the discomfort, the weakness, all were instantaneously gone. And, and then she, was, she, she could somehow feel it. And she was ready to slip away and disappear back into the crowd. No one would ever know what happened. But Jesus all of a sudden, does something quite unexpected. He turns around and he says, who is the one who touched me? Everybody freezes probably. You know, the disciples are a little confused. Peter, you can tell by his words, who touched you? Everybody's touching you, Jesus. Do you not see the crowds? Peter, in his typical fashion. Now, the woman did not want anyone to notice her. Otherwise, she could have just gone directly to Jesus said, Jesus, I'm sick. I've been bleeding. Please heal me. She just goes from behind, touches clothes. She's ready to go. Her faith was, what, was a, just simply a purely a, a self-serving, self-centered, even private kind of faith. It's like, I, 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 I need Jesus for just what I can get from him, and then I'm going to be on my way. I'm going to touch him. I'm going to be healed, and then I'm going home. But Jesus' love and compassion for this woman would not allow her to remain with such a faith. When he asked the question, it was not that he did not know, because he is God. He wanted instead, as God, he wanted to strengthen her faith. He was aware that power had gone out of him, and he knew, but he wanted her to speak up, to let her private faith become a public faith. And with great fear, she comes forth. She, she's aware that she has not escaped notice, as Luke records it. And Mark says that Jesus looked at her. She knew that he knew. And so she comes and falls down trembling before him in humility and, and declared in the presence. Notice, declared in the presence of all the people. What she was just basically going to make a keep private, she now made public. She told the whole truth and nothing but the truth. She told everything to everyone about her bleeding. And you can imagine everybody's like, whoa, bleed, whoa, unclean. And then her desperation, the 12 years, the, the many doctors, the many cures. She told of her faith and how she believed that she would just touch him and she could be healed. And then she told of the moment that she touched him and then the immediate healing that she received. And her faith in that telling and that declaration and that public declaration in the presence of all the people grew from a private faith to a public faith. Jesus' word to challenge her faith to testify of what God had done for her. In fact, that's what he told the garrison to do, right? Demoniac, to, to go back and tell your people what God has done for you. 
in here by this question, who is the one who touched me? She comes forth and declares it all. Jesus assures her then that your faith has made you well. Jesus wanted the woman to understand that it was her faith, even as little as it was in Jesus, that resulted in her being healed. Wherever she would go, she could now testify, and she would boldly testify, because everyone now knew it. They'd probably want to ask her to tell the story again next time they saw her. And it was, it was her faith in Jesus that had made her well. And you can imagine she would tell everyone wherever she could go. You know, when you and I face incurable disease or death, a lot of those times, I understand, I'm a private person too, and you just sometimes want to just be alone. That's okay. I get, it's okay. But also, just keep in mind as we get those moments of, when, we, when we're in those moments of life, when we face that, those moments of dying and death, it is one final opportunity, one final opportunity for you to glorify your God, one final opportunity to show your faith in Jesus, to trust in him in the midst of it, And when, and how we trust in Jesus in the face of death will be a, an immense encouragement to those around you who are watching, who see how you face death. I watched uh, watched two people die personally in my life. And one uh, did not know Christ. It was a terrible, it was a terrible final moment of death. I'll never forget it. But then I saw another who did follow Jesus die. And her even though it was long and drawn out. It was a peaceful, trusting death. The final moments of death are a great encouragement to those of us on this side. How we might learn, how we might be encouraged to put our faith in Jesus, to know the difference between faith in Jesus and what, what our shepherd, the presence of our shepherd does when we face those final moments. Unless our faith should always be a public faith. Whether in life or in death, let us testify of our faith in Jesus Christ as long as we are able. Well, thirdly, not only as we face, face death and dying, we find a, 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 necess, a, a public kind of faith, but we also learn about a patient faith. The healing of the woman is a testimony of the power of Jesus over, di over disease. But it's also a revel revelation of how, uh, even from a ministry standpoint, ministry often faces interruptions. While doing one thing, another, <laughs> Jesus here uh, encounters another need that comes up that is, more, that is just as pressing. And with Jesus, we learn there's a, there's a flexibility to always minister in the moment. That's especially for us, for, for me as a pastor. I'm about on a Sunday morning. I'm usually very focused. I'm running around doing things. Uh, 
but at the same time, I, when someone comes up and talks to me, I, I hope I will always have that sensitivity to know when a, one of the flock needs my personal attention. I hope that all of us have that kind of thing. We're all, a lot of times we are just busy going about doing ministry. When we, can, we need, sometimes we need to, God brings a divine interruption into our lives so we might minister to that individual. But there's also a lesson here when we think about Jairus. And the story is it begins with Jairus and ends with Jairus. Is, uh, Jairus. So really, this, this little interruption in the middle, we've got to think about it. And how does it impact Jairus? Now, Jesus' encounter with this hemorrhaging woman of 12 years occurred during Jesus' travel to Jairus' house. And Jairus knows that his daughter is at the point of death, right? She could die any moment. It's an emergency situation. It's, it's really not. It's, it's a time for quick action. It's not a time for a conversation, at least from our limited, finite minds would, uh, can, can think. Jairus' daughter requires Jesus now. But Jesus takes time to heal and teach a hemorrhaging woman. The encounter must have taken an eternity in Jairus' mind as he's waiting. He's watching this exchange. And he knows that his daughter's dying at home. But as far as we know, Jairus does not say a word. He patiently waits for Jesus, trusting that Jesus' timing is the best timing. And, here's, uh, and this is our lesson. And when we put our trust in Jesus, we need to trust in his timing. We need to be patient with his timing. When you face death, you may find yourself asking, well, why doesn't the Lord just either heal me or why does he just heal me now or just take me home now? Why is he allowing me to go through this particular, this particular trial for so long? Why, 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 do I have to, why do I have to wait so, many, so, you know, so, so long to die? And we, may not, we will never understand God's timing, not in this life. But faith in Jesus Christ, will produce a patience because we trust in God and he knows better. He knows what's best. And yes, he may allow us, some of us, well, all of us I think would want a, just a, a quick death, but not all of us are going to have one. Some of us are going to have a slow, drawn out death. But whatever the timing that he may have for you and me, we can put our trust in him knowing that he knows what is best for his own. If he allows the dying process to be extended, then have faith that there is something that he wants to accomplish in you or maybe through you. God does not get his joy out of watching you suffer. Some may think that God is unjust or uncaring because things don't work out according to their timing. But when there's a delay, as there was here, you can trust God then he is doing it for his glory, for a greater good, not only for others, but for you who love him. First, and so there's a, there's a patient faith that we see, even as we think about what Jairus was going through. Then in verse 49, news comes that tests Jairus' faith in Jesus. He's been patient, and then he receives the worst news he's ever heard. And we learn in this, uh, these two verses, verses 49 to 50, 
that faith in Jesus in the face of death and dying is going to be a courageous faith. It needs to be a courageous faith. Verse 49, 50. While he was still speaking, someone came from the house of the synagogue official saying, Your daughter has died. You do not trouble the teacher anymore. But when Jesus heard this, he answered him, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe and she will be made well. The news was crushing. Jairus' daughter was dead. All his efforts to bring Jesus to her was for naught. It was too late. Jairus believed that Jesus could heal her, but now that she's dead, the opportunity was gone. His people told him to no longer trouble the teacher, and in fact, to send him away. Come home just to mourn your daughter's death. And as the words, words settled in, Jairus was overcome with fear. A fear that the words were true, fear that he was too late, fear that his daughter was gone, that he would never fear, that he would never see her again, fear that he and his wife would live the rest of their days without their only daughter. And Jesus then responds to his fears. Do not be afraid any longer. Stop being afraid. Only believe, and she will be made well. Now, despite hearing what Jairus' friends had said, Jesus encouraged Jairus with two brief commands. Don't be afraid and believe. Don't be afraid and believe. In the face of death, oftentimes we face fear. Fear is a very natural kind of response to death and dying. Don't be afraid, is Jesus. Stop being afraid. It's natural to be afraid. But if you trust in Jesus, believe in him, you don't have to be afraid. And then Jesus offers a promise, a promise for Jairus. Only believe and she will be made well. A promise for him that he, Jesus is promising to, really the, literal, the word is save. And she will be saved. She'll be delivered. She'll be delivered from death. Jesus' words encouraged Jairus. Up till now, Jesus had demonstrated his power to heal the lame, the sick, the demon-possessed. And he was now about to demonstrate his power to raise the dead. He had already raised the dead, but it was a dead of, of, a, of a Gentile, of a Gentile uh, from a Gentile family. Here is the, the first raising of the dead of, of a Jewish family, a Jewish person. And although we're not sure if Jairus fully understood what Jesus was promising, was about to do, Jairus clearly acted on Jesus' words. He continued to put his faith in Jesus because he didn't send him away. He didn't say, oh, no, okay, well, my daughter's dead, so you don't need to come anymore. He didn't say, oh, yeah, uh, I'll, I'll take it from here. We'll, we'll go bear here. Thank you for your time. But he kept, he believed when Jesus said, believe in me. She will be made well. And he continues, and he takes, leads the master to, into his home because he believed. He courageously believed. 
even though he had never, could never imagine what was about to take place. And facing the death of a loved one can cause many fears for us, uh, whether it's fear of their suffering, um, fear of what will we, what will we, how will we live without that loved one. But it can also be frightening as well to just face one's own death. Something's about to happen to you that you've never experienced before. It will even challenge your, it will challenge your faith in Jesus and what he said. And set that to him times that continuing to believe in Jesus Christ produces a courage in the face of death. You know, think about the shepherd's psalm. When the psalmist says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. I fear no, nothing bad happening to me. I don't fear that time. Why? Because thou art with me. His shepherd's with him. He knows, he knows that his shepherd is with him. And when you and I are facing death, we don't, that valley of the shadow of death, we don't have to fear. Yes, it's natural to fear, but we can remember to not fear because we remember who's with us. Jesus Christ and his presence, his rod, his staff. It's just knowing that we have a Savior waiting on the other side. He's not just on the other side. He's walking with us. No one else goes with us but Jesus. And we have courage in the face. Of death and dying. Lastly, uh, faith in Jesus in the faith of disease and death is going to be, most importantly of all, a life-giving faith. It's a life-giving faith. Verses 51 to 56. Let me finish the story. When he, that is Jesus, came to the house, he did not allow anyone to enter with him, except Peter and John and James and the girl's father and mother. Now they were all weeping, That's, these are people outside, weeping and lamenting for her, and as well as the parents. But he said, stop weeping, for she has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him, knowing that she had died. He, however, took her by the hand and called, saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up immediately and he gave orders for something to be given to her to eat. Her parents were amazed. But he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. When Jesus arrives at the house, we read here, the house is surrounded by mourners. And they would have hired mourners, professional mourners. But it could have been family and friends as well. But Jesus doesn't allow anyone to go in the house with him except Peter, James, John, and the girl's parents. Everyone else is, is outside. And entering in, he, he says to them, basically, uh, to, to stop weeping. And he says, for she has not died, but is asleep. And then everyone starts laughing. And they say, no, she's not asleep. This, this man's confused. She's dead. We, we saw her. We, were, uh, we have the witnesses of her death. But Jesus did not mean that she was actually literally sleeping. He meant that simply that her death was not a permanent death. It was like sleep, that she would soon arise from it. it was a, even in this word, it was the, Jesus' own prophecy of her resurrection. Jesus had said the same thing in John chapter 11 about Lazarus, when Lazarus died, that he was asleep. Remember there, the disciples were all confused and misunderstood. And so Jesus had to actually tell them plainly that Lazarus is dead, but he's asleep and I'm going to raise him from the dead. 
This time, Jesus would not explain to anyone. He would just keep it, this story or this event to five people who, would take, who he was taking into this room. And he goes to the room and he sees the daughter there lying dead on, the, on her bed. And he takes the child by the hand. He, he touches her. Again, uh, a dead person's unclean. He doesn't need to touch her. He could just speak it. Again, Jesus. The wonderful thing about Jesus' holy. Again, we see so much Jesus' compassion and touch. But Jesus' holiness. To, there's nothing unclean that touches him that causes him to be unclean. But everything that he touches becomes clean. That's the power of Jesus. When Jesus comes in our life, and that's just, we can just preach that devotionally. Jesus touches all your lives. He's, he makes the unclean clean. That's what he does. He touches her life. And then he says, child, arise. Miraculously, her spirit returns. Immediately, the girl gets up. And you can just imagine her parents are like uh, amazed, shocked, uh, you know, probably about to faint. But, and there's just, there's just awe because their daughter was dead. The mother was there. She'd been she'd probably been crying at the daughter's bed for for the the amount of time that uh, that Jairus had been away. Jesus gives them orders to give her something to eat, so she eats. And then, of all things, strangely, he tells them to tell no one what had happened. It's interesting, even here, uh, uh, where throughout in these early stages of Jesus' ministry, whenever he does such kind of miracles, he, he tells them not to tell anyone. He, he limits it, even though eventually there would be a time for telling. He tells the garrison demoniac to tell, but, but he's a Gentile. But here among the Jews, he oftentimes tells them to not tell anyone. There's a, no particular word explanation given, probably because he knew that it would hinder his preaching ministry. If all the throngs just kept coming to him, or maybe trying to make they would, when they even before when he rode Jerusalem, they were ready to make him king. But a king not the kind that he was coming to be as at that moment. But in any case, the resurrection of this daughter was immediate. The healing was complete. Uh, and Jairus' faith in Christ was rewarded with the life of his daughter. Jairus and his wife were completely amazed, awed, and dumbstruck. Jesus raises the dead. Jesus has the power, not only over disease, but power over death. And who witnessed both of these? Jairus. Jairus saw them both. You can imagine the, the, the change in this man's life. The leader in the synagogue in Capernaum. The testimony that he would give to his fellow uh, uh, leaders in the synagogue. His testimony that he would then give to the, the Pharisees and the scribes that would speak evil of Jesus in Capernaum. The turning point in that in that town. But the point, of course, the big point of this is it cannot be missed is that Jesus has the power to give life. In this case, it's physical life. But we know that this girl would live again only to die later. The resurrections that Jesus performed were all done for the purpose to show that he had power over death and he had the power to give life. But every single one of those would live to die again. And Jesus did not come to earth in order to bring your loved ones back to life only to die again. Jesus came to give us something greater, eternal life. He came to give eternal life to those who die so that they would never die again. 
life after death for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. Life eternal when you die. Immediate entrance into the kingdom, into the presence of God, to spend eternity with him, to see his face, never to see sorrow, never to see death again, never to experience the, the pangs of sin, the curse of sin, to enjoy him and delight in our greatest treasure forever. Jesus, faith in Jesus is a life-giving faith. Jesus gives life to those who put their faith in him. All of the miracles of Jesus, they are physical miracles, but any, all of Jesus' miracles really point to spiritual realities about Jesus and the power that he gives to show where even this miracle that he, where he brings this girl to life is a testimony to how Jesus gives, but more importantly, eternal life, spiritual life. We read, uh, and this is the promise that we, li- we find in the, gospel, in the epistles. Paul writes in Romans 6, 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is our promise. If you have Jesus Christ in your life, if you have invited him into your home, you have put your faith in him, no matter what your sins were before, no matter what sins you've committed, and though they, they all they deserve, have earned you death, God, through faith in Jesus Christ, has granted you the free gift of eternal life, forgiveness through Christ. Well, these are lessons that we've learned from Jesus' healing of a woman with a 12-year hemorrhage and a man with a dying 12-year-old girl. Jesus' power over disease and death manifests, and, but, and beyond that, we learn the respond, necessary response of faith. For you and I, brother and sister, will all either face incurable disease or inevitable death. For many, it will be a fearful time as we wait to enter into eternity. And though we may have loved ones around surrounding us even, no one will go with us except one, our Lord Jesus, our shepherd who leads us and guides us through the valley of the shadow of death. The only thing we can do at those moments, even as we're losing our grips on everything this life has offered us, it slips through our hands as we take our final breaths. If you have faith in Jesus, he will be the only possession that we have as we go into eternity. And the only thing you can do at those moments is to hold on to Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. A faith I trust will be a, a humble faith, a public faith patient faith, a courageous faith, but most importantly of all in that moment of time, remember that it will be a life-giving faith, a faith that once, once that trial passes, it will be eternity in bliss and with the Lord, our Savior, Lord, our Savior. For we who believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, death ushers us into that which is truly life, a life where we are with our Lord and Jesus forever. And I, then with Jesus' promise, John 11, 25, 26, I am the resurrection and the life. 
He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. I love the question. Do you believe this? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word and these truths. And guide us and help us to be men and women who continually put our trust in you. That we would finish well in these years that you give us and in the final moments of our days. Help us to trust in you, Lord. Help us to hold on to Jesus. Encourage us, Father, from your word and glorify yourself through our life and our death, living and dying. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.